Thanks to everybody joining us today. We are very excited to have Jesse Daniels, the author of Nice White Ladies, the book that uh, many of us here are, uh, in this group read. And so we're excited about that. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Jesse, then we're going to have a presentation, and then we'll dive into questions. If you want to know more about Jesse, please visit her website at jessiedaniels.net. That's jessiedaniels.net. She is a full professor of sociology at Hunter College. She is also the affiliate faculty in Africana Studies, Critical Social Psychology, and Sociology at the Graduate Center SUNY. For more than 30 years, Daniels has studied race and racism and various forms of media. Her first book, White Lies, explored far-right extremist groups, printed newsletters. Then she followed that, that with a second book, Cyber Racism, which examined some of the same groups and how they had or hadn't moved on to the onto the popular internet. Of course, we're here because in 2021, Jesse released Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Can Help Dismantle It. The book tries to understand what's behind the Karen phenomena and so much more about white women's role in the current political landscape. Uh, again, much more information on her website, jessiedaniels.net. Please check it out. And we are so excited and a lot of gratitude that you're here with us today. So with that, right. I'm turn it over to you. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for being here, for taking um, your precious time with this book. I'm so grateful to all of you. So I'm just going to do this scary thing that still three years into using this technology still frightens me every time. I'm going to share my screen and just hope that it's okay. So I'm just going to do a brief recap of the book. I'm sure that you all have read it, but just in case you haven't, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I see as the major points, and then we can go into full Q&A from there. I want to start by just asking this question about why is it so hard to talk about white women? Because I, I have experienced a lot of this in the response to the book, just people pushing back against the very subject matter of the book. And I see this in popular culture a lot too. Let me give you a couple of examples. Well, this is the opening line. No, no need to repeat that. You've all seen it. This is kind of the focus of the book. You know, there was this woman not far from where I'm sitting right now in Manhattan, uh, Amy Cooper, who was um, who became known as Central Park Karen for her calling the police on an African-American gentleman who was doing nothing except telling her to leash her dog in Central Park. Another white woman who's been in the news before this was sometimes called Barbecue Becky. So before Karen's, there were Becky's. I think that just speaks to our short memory span in current popular culture. She too called 911 on a black family that was setting up a barbecue pit and perfectly legal thing to do in a public park in Oakland. And then there was Kermit Patty. Again, I think the clever little alliterative names don't matter as much as the phenomenon that we're witnessing. This was a white woman who called the police on a child, actually a young black girl about eight years old, who was selling water without a permit. All right, so this is the peppermint patty. And then there's this <laughs> Bill Burr monologue. I don't know if any of you saw this. I think that part of what makes it difficult to talk about white women at this moment is that there is some misogyny mixed in with these critiques. So here's Bill Burr on uh, October 11th of 2020. And he does this great, very funny monologue calling out white women. And he has this line about, you know, white women have whipped our Gucci um, covered feet, Gucci boot covered feet it, and whatever. Anyway, I'm going to flub the line. I'm no stand-up comic, but it's very funny. And then it gets to a point in the routine where he sort of stops and says, you white women need to shut up and sit down next to me. And I just, I was laughing all the way through this monologue and I thought, uh, except for that part, you know, and I'm enough of a feminist still that I'm like, that gets a big middle finger salute from men for me. There's also misogyny in the way that people have talked about Karens as monsters. And I, there's a whole section in the book where I talk about monster theory. We don't have to get into that unless you're super curious about it. But I think that there's something about these masks. This was another cishet white man who created Halloween mask in 2020 that were meant to evoke white women, right? He looked around the landscape in 2020, he said, Karens are the scariest thing to me. And so that's why he created these masks. So how do we understand this critique of white women and not take on the misogyny that comes with it? I think it's a really hard thing to do. So not to put the New York Post in your uh, in your screens, but this was a common, um, and it still happens 
oftentimes now it's around wokeness, but it's the same kind of rhetoric. Booksellers group ban, pan for anti-racism event. What's up with white women? I don't know these two people, but it looks like a perfectly reasonable book and a perfectly reasonable kind of discussion to have. So it's not just the, the New York Post that does this kind of pushback against paying attention to white women. This same New York Post story got picked up by the venerable David Brooks of the New York Times just a week after that headline. And even, you know, esteemed playwrights like Suzanne Laurie Parks has has really pushed back against this this idea of the Karen saying it's interesting that in our mission to dismantle the patriarchy, we sure to go after a lot of white women. If you talk about it, it's like, no, you're supporting white supremacy. She pushes back against that and says, no, I'm not. I'm supporting a nuanced conversation. And I really hope that that's what I'm trying to do in the Nice White Ladies book is to have this more nuanced conversation about what whiteness and being gendered femme does to us and for us in the culture. Sometimes with my uh, undergraduate class, I, I will give them uh, an assignment to do a content analysis of the Vanity Fair Hollywood issue. This comes out every year. This magazine does a profile, a big puff piece of all the actors, actresses that are nominated for the Oscars. And as you go back, you'll notice that this one is from 1995, but you can go back for year after year. And what you see is a sea of white faces. Now we could name some of the exceptions here, you know, Kerry Washington, Angela Bassett, Lupita Nyong'o. Viola Davis, right? But that handful of Black actresses makes the point, right? That there is the sea of whiteness, yet we still um, are not supposed to talk about white women or about race when it comes to white women. So my question really in the book is how can white women be everywhere in the culture, but nowhere in our analysis? How can we understand what we in academia would say the subject position of being a white woman if we can't talk about it? So that's really what the work of the book is meant to do, is to help us talk about what it means to be a white woman. And of course, it's not the same for everyone. This is a, a quote from my friend and the wonderful writer, Natasha Stovall, who writes in this lovely 2019 piece, Whiteness on the Couch. She says, she writes, what is whiteness and which one? Farm to table white or cracker barrel white? Rust belt white or sunbelt white? Electric car white or pickup truck white? digital white or analog white, 1% honky or precariat au fait, Italian, Irish, English, Ukrainian, Polish. She does a lovely bit in that passage of sort of drawing out the nuances of whiteness, that there are different kinds, right? I think of, I always think of this passage as the farm, farm to table white or cracker barrel white passage, which I think sums up an interesting class and culture distinction. And I added my gender twist to it by saying, do you mean, you know, Martha Stewart white or Paula Dean white, right? It's that same kind of class and cultural distinction to say that it's not all the same, but there is a work that whiteness does in the culture that I think it's important that we pay attention to. So part of what I argue in the book and part of what I think is probably some of the most controversial argument that I put in the book is this idea that white families are fortresses. And for evidence of this, we don't need to look any further really than Patty McCloskey, who's pictured here with her husband in June of 2020. If you don't recall this incident, there are peaceful and unarmed Black Lives Matter protesters walking by their home, which one magazine called a, South, a Midwestern palazzo. And they're standing there not only with loaded guns, but with the safety off and their finger on the trigger of these weapons. And in a way, I think that this incident becomes a perfect metaphor for white families as a fortress and white property as fortress as well. Another controversial argument in the book is that white families pass on whiteness. This is not an original argument to me, but one I drew from a theologian uh, by the name of Fandika. She just goes by the one name. And she writes, the Euro-American child learns to feel ashamed of its own differences from its community's racial values leaving the child with a sense of emptiness, futility, and homelessness. And I really came to appreciate this argument as I worked on the book. And I see a lot of evidence for this in the culture. I talk about it in the book some, but we can talk about it more in Q&A if you like. And white families have always hoarded wealth. This is another thing that we have been taught is our birthright, is, um, is the way that we should take care of our children, is to hoard wealth and pass on inequitably gained wealth. And that's something that we have always done. It's not new, 
There's a historical book that I challenge you all to read next by Stephanie Jones Rogers called They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. Part of what she writes about looking back at the historical records is that white women also owned enslaved people, and they did that with a particular cruelty to them. And that was really news to me because in the women's studies class that I took when I was in graduate school, we were taught that white women had no rights to property. So this is really a new and important finding for me. Of course, we know that during the time of segregation, this is you know part of when I have lived through this and seen people in my own life who were the white women who were the constant gardeners of segregation. But in 2016, when a majority of white women voted for Trump, there was a lot of there were a lot of headlines like this one. Why do white women keep voting for the GOP and against their own interests? I just want to beg all journalists to stop framing any story in this way ever again, because these women are not voting against their own interests. They're voting for their interest in whiteness. Whiteness is their interest. It's not a left-right issue that I'm trying to highlight. It's really something that affects all of us. The 911 system, the mechanism through which these white women that we, we all know the tag names of now, the memes for, they all use this system that was really built for the comfort of white people and the suppression of Black uprising. Jonathan Metzl has written a wonderful book called Dying of Whiteness. Again, I, another book I recommend for your group if you want to read something next. And he writes that whiteness is really an illness of the mind weaponized onto the body of a nation. And part of the way that he does this is by looking at different policies and the way that those policies become proxies for racial identity. The easiest one to think about, I think, is guns and the way that some people view gun ownership as a proxy for their white identity. And clean eating, there's a whole chapter about wellness in the book, and we can talk about the way clean eating maps on to white supremacy. And, and one of the uh, final things I'll say about this is that there is, I for a brief time worked in, in public health, so I, I can read epidemiology, although I am not myself an epidemiologist. And part of what we know from the research in epidemiology is that suicide rates among middle-aged white women. And that is usually the group 48 to 64, which is the group that I'm in right now. And that age group has had a marked increase in suicide rates. Epidemiologists call this an epidemiological mystery. They have no explanation for this. I think part of the explanation is that our shelf value, the, the comment that you may have heard Don Lemon make about Nikki Haley recently on CNN, where he said, you know, um, Nikki Haley is past her expiration date, right? Sort of this notion that that women who are white or white passing as Nikki Haley is have a kind of expiration date in which are, you know, uh, we should be gotten rid of by that time, right? Um, so I think that there is not this kind of veneration of older people in our culture. And I think that becomes particularly hard on white women. And then I talk in the book about my own mother and her experience both with gender oppression and I believe the way that whiteness circumscribed her life even further and made it even smaller than it was already. And then I think this is really the takeaway of the book. As women and particularly white women, we think the bargain is this, be nice, channel light and love and everything will work out. But the real bargain is actually be nice and don't speak up because our collective silence and specifically the silence of white women facilitates the continued smooth operation of oppressive systems. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I we have questions crafted, but I obviously want to ask if there's anything that came up for anybody on here. Um, I know that most of you read it. And so maybe this popped something into your mind. Is there any questions that you have about what you just heard? Yeah, I was going to ask if your book has been banned anywhere. I just wonder about, you know, you look at a lot of schools and other institutions, we couldn't even have this conversation now. Yeah, I, uh, I, it has not been banned anywhere. I hope it will be soon. <laughs> <laughs> so that maybe more people will hear about it. But no, it's not been banned what anywhere. Think, what do you think generally about, I guess I'll call it oppression of having conversations about racial issues? You know, it seems yeah. like it's part of denialism I mean, of I grew up in an environment that was racially divided, you know, in the 60s and early 70s in my high school, we had in the town had racial riots during this was during the Martin Luther King and Kennedy assassinations. So, you know, I've experienced racial divide, but it seems like part of the solution is to have conversations 
about these issues. And now the, there's a big pull from the right, not even to have conversations or discuss it. You're absolutely correct. The far right does not, and the, you know, the middle right does not want us to talk about these issues. I mean, I think in, in part it's because these are uncomfortable conversations for us to have as white people. And I think, you know, for us as white women, it can be difficult, you know, especially if we've grown up as, um, you know, sort of adults believing ourselves to be feminist. And part of that, at least the way I was taught feminism was to see myself only as a victim and not as a participant and systems of oppression. And so I think that that shift from seeing oneself as only ever a victim and seeing oneself as having agency, but agency that, you know, brushes up, uh, brushes up against complicity, you know, makes it a really difficult conversation. And I, I think that's frankly behind all the banning of critical race theory and all that kind of stuff is really about, is that based about a fear that people have and a fear about being confronted by their own complicity in these systems. I think just to take that one step further, I think that fear is rooted in a, a misunderstanding that once I understand this, I'm going to be uncomfortable and I'm never going to be able to escape that discomfort. And part of what I'm trying to convey to people is I want you to look at this discomfort, sit with it, and then let's go on to a brighter future, which is beyond that. But I really don't believe we can get there without looking at the discomfort first which is a hard thing for a lot of people to want to, yeah. Yeah, thanks. I think, you know, Ron kind of had my question, but I guess I'll pivot a little bit. I mean, and it's a hard question, but do you have any tools to help have these conversations? Because, you know, I, I try to start them with a lot of my friends and it just seems like it is, it's such, um, you know, wokeness is like this big pejorative term now and everything. And I just, I I get stuck on how to how to have these conversations and not, you know, bring all the labels with you while you're doing it or something. It's, it's a difficult thing, and I'm just not sure how to move forward from here. Right. Well, I mean, you know, just frankly, one of the tools that I use um, in the book is to bring in my personal experience. So, for example, I bring in the story about my mother, and I think that that's a very important one, you know, to sort of talk about the destructiveness of whiteness and how much it damages our lives and how it damages us internally. In the wellness chapter, I talk about my own relationship with someone who fell apart because they got so into wellness. Um, so, so I think telling personal stories is a really important way to do that. And I think that um, there is something, if you don't know about it, um, let me tell you about something called deep canvassing. And there's a, a new book out called The Art of Changing Minds by Adnan, and I can't recall his last name now. Gidaharadas. Das. yes, thank you. But part of what Adnan does in this wonderful book, The Persuaders, is he goes through what some of those tools are. And and great, I see somebody who's just read it. One of the, and Melody, you may want to say more about it since you've just read it. Um, but one of the things that he argues with that we need to be doing is finding, it's sort of like if you've ever studied improv or watched a documentary about improv, this, the direction is always yes and. Okay, you're telling me a scenario, yes and. And it's the same thing with deep canvassing that you're always trying to yes and people. Oh, I, I hear what you're saying. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, you're always flipping it back onto them and asking about their personal experience. You know, I mean, to be quite honest, my tool is to write a book and, <laughs> and you know, uh, with mixed success, but there are other tools available. And I think that the persuaders is a good, is a good place to start if you're looking for those. So that, so talking about your book, what's been the feedback? Um, have you gotten a mixture of feedback? You Do you find it's been hard to get the book into white ladies' hands? Yeah, I mean, I didn't actually understand the response to the book until I had a conversation with Brittany Cooper, who wrote um, Eloquent Rage. And we happened to end up at a dinner party seated across from each other. And she asked me a very similar question. How's the reception been to your book? And when I said chilly, <laughs> she said, yeah, you you white girls do this mean girl shit to each other. I really had a, one of those moments where the penny dropped, you know, or a light bulb moment, however you want to say it. 
But I was like, oh, right. I think there are a lot of white women who think that I've written this book to like harsh on them, to like denigrate them in the same way that Bill Burr did in his stand-up routine, right? And, and that just is preposterous to me because it's a lot of trouble to write a book. And why would I do it for such a silly reason? Now, I really wrote this book as a way to build solidarity. So one of the things that I talk about in the conclusion is, is I encourage people to get more involved in Surge, which is showing up for racial justice. And I'm sure there's a chapter near you, wherever you are sitting at this moment. That's how I actually found you. Oh, great. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Surge is also really helping people, helping to train people and helping to train people to get organized to do that kind of deep canvassing work with fellow white people, what I call fellow raised white people, because I don't actually believe there's a thing of whiteness. I think it's a myth that we've been raised to believe in. But Surge is doing great work in that. And if you want to roll up your sleeves and get busy, then I would say go to Surge and get involved in some of their workshops. I'm in a group here in New York that does calling in practice. So we practice with each other doing the calling in and ramping up to doing the deep canvassing work. There are lots of opportunities to practice that work if you want to. I think that that is a, an interesting, I think we, I did hear some reflection um, from, from folks that read the book and on that comment um, that you, that you received um, from Brittany. And one of them, one woman asked, this was, I thought this was an interesting, and this goes back to one of the articles. I don't know if it was the New Yorker that you put up or it was from, from David Cook. She said, in some ways, it seemed that the book lumped all white women together from a woman engaged with a white supremacy network or group to well-intentioned white women trying to be an ally. Are there nuances and how do you think about them as the same or, or are there differences? And does it even matter? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a valid question. I am lumping together all white women because for a very important reason, which is whiteness does work in the world. When I show up, so for example, just on a call the other night, actually with some people in Surge, a woman who had been reading the book held up the cover of the book, sort of like you did at the beginning of this call, said, oh, nice white ladies. I'm sure that doesn't mean any of us on this call. <laughs> I just was like, no, it means exactly all of us on this call. It means all of us. So part of the reason I call it nice white ladies is because my point is to disrupt each one of those terms, what it means to be nice, what it means to be white, what it means to be a lady. And I think in some ways what the feminist movement has given us has been a, a real disruption of the term lady, right? That was a term that I was raised with, right? And it was something I was taught to become. You know, when I was in my 20s, thank God, I met some feminists and they, you know, said there were other ways of being in the world, right? And I'm trying to do a similar thing with what it means to be white. Like, I don't, I think that there are a lot of assumptions in whiteness that carry across those distinctions between women who are in far right groups and well-intentioned white women, you know, perhaps on this call. And the thing that that connects us is the work that whiteness does when we show up any place. So for example, part of the reason that 911 has been implicated in so many of these calls around, you know, Karen's or Permit Patty or Barbecue Becky, whoever you want to talk about, part of why 911 becomes a piece of this story is because that's a technology that is designed for white women to use across all categories. It's about whiteness and to a lesser extent, white men, but it's really about white people's comfort, that call system. And so once we can begin to see how we as white women can be unified around this identity, which is being used to harm other people, my hope is that we could become unified in resisting that story that gets told about us without us. One of the questions that I, I, I sat with, and I, I, I actually really enjoyed the very the, the ending of the way you phrase this in chapter two, was this intersectional feminism instead of white feminism. 
which I don't know if you coined that term or if that, because I just thought, wow, that, that, when you wrote that, I was like, yeah, okay, now I get it. And I love the truth that you offered before that, when somebody asked you, do you consider yourself a feminist? And how do you respond to that? Can you talk a little bit more, more about how white women can begin to move towards intersectional feminism yeah. and how this has evolved um, since even researching and writing your book, if there's been any changes to it or anything you've learned? Great question. I think that, um, first of all, I absolutely did not coin the term intersectional feminist. We have Kimberly Crenshaw to thank for that, who, by the way, is also one of the originators of critical race theory. And so I just want to shout out Kimberly Crenshaw, from whom I've learned so much and is a great scholar and thinker. And I just want to give credit where credit is due. Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate in the place and time I went to graduate school, which was University of Texas at Austin in the late eighties, early nineties, when actually work by Kimberly Crenshaw and other critical race theorists was just emerging. And I got pointed in that direction early on. And so that's been foremost in my thoughts for, you know, a long time now. Um, but I, I think that the the key insight to me about what it means to be an intersectional feminist is to be constantly thinking about how I show up in the world. This is something that Patricia Hill Collins, who I was lucky enough to study with, she wrote Black Feminist Thought. She refers to this as positionality. And that's a, you know, academic word, but basically it's just what is your relationship to the thing that you're talking about or researching or studying? In my work, you know, I did that first book, which had been my dissertation. The book became White Lies, and it's all about Klan and other groups like that in printed publication. And in the process of writing that book, I discovered quite by accident that my grandfather on my father's side had been in the Klan. <laughs> I was just like, what are the odds? Odds are actually pretty good, but that's another story. So I was like, what am I going to do with this? And I, I really wrestled. So there were a couple of years where I didn't write anything. I didn't know what to do about it. And finally, what I decided was that I needed to write a preface to that book that dealt with my positionality. In other words, my relationship to the thing I was studying. I wasn't coming at it as an objective social science researcher. I had my own stakes in the game. And that was, oh, this is personal now. This is my grandfather. This is my family that's doing this. So that's where it became, that became intersectional for me to do that very personal preface and to say, look, this is my relationship to this material. I'm not objective. And I think that to the extent that we as white women can start paying attention to how we show up in the world, right? Just like when we walk into a room, what's the perception that people have of us? And how can we acknowledge that if it needs to be acknowledged? And how can we work to connect with other human beings, you know, aside from those categories? So one of the things that I often say about myself is like people, people that just met me, they don't know I've written a book called Nice White Ladies, right? I just walk into a room and I'm just any other nice white lady in Manhattan. You know what I mean? And so the, so the challenge becomes in any interaction, how am I going to show up? I mean, I have bad days where I'm cranky and I'm frustrated and I want to call the manager, <laughs> you know, but I also know that no matter what I, what tone of voice I use, no matter what I do, I'm still a nice white lady who is asking to speak to the manager, right? So is there another way that I can think about a situation that I'm in and problem solve that doesn't involve calling the state to be on my side? Because that's what's happening with those 911 calls, right? As white women are like, I can't handle this. I feel responsible for this municipal housekeeping. And so I'm going to call the concierge, aka 911, to help me deal with this situation. What's another way that we could be in the world? Another way to be in the world is how can I be in solidarity with people that I encounter on a day to day basis instead of see them as a problem that needs to be solved, see them as a problem who's in my way, right? Which I think is what a lot of those 911 calls are about. I love that they say, how, how can I be in solidarity? I mean, so this is, we're, we're a faith-based group, you know, we're um, predominantly, most of us are, are Methodist on this call. And it really sounds to me, those words that you're selecting, are, it's about a, a place of wholeness, a place of a community, a place of relationship building versus pitting me against you. And, and I want to come out on top. I want to be the winner. It is countercultural, I think, so, to, to what we experience, certainly in, in this space, uh, in, in our culture, in, in the American culture. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think it, awareness is really important and, and it's hard. It's very, it's an uncomfortable space for people. Yeah. I, I mean, I hear that a lot that it's uncomfortable, but I think it's only uncomfortable because we've been asleep for so long, you know? And so it can be uh, uncomfortable at first, but I think it's discomfort on a path to feeling much, much better. Right. I mean, I, I was just having a conversation with someone recently and they were like, yeah, but how are we going to get white people to give up all that stuff? And I'm like, I don't, I don't actually see it that way. I don't actually think that the conversation that I want to have with white people is not about what are we going to give up to achieve racial equality. My, my thing is we have stakes in this too, as people who are raised to believe in our whiteness and it's destroying us. It's actually hurting us the way that we're, that we've learned to be white and the way that we're passing on whiteness in our families. It's really damaging. Along those lines of giving things up. So I work in the financial services industry and I actually help people make sure their assets are protected and things like that. And so as you're bringing up some of that in the book, it was making me more aware. And then also other things that I'm reading too, and feeling like a big part of why I do the work that I do is to educate people who don't necessarily know that there are ways to do things financially that they maybe weren't taught. But now I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the systems that are in place that are not, that are broken, the underlying like foundational systems that are broken. And there are rules in those systems that exist right now that should be changed. But while they exist right now, I kind of enjoy helping people play within the rules to the advantage of, of their families and their communities. Now I feel like it's more complex than I was looking at it before. And I wonder what thoughts you have about that. Yeah, great, great set of questions. And I'd love to actually keep talking with you about this because it's it's complicated and I, I don't think we're going to solve it in five or 10 minutes here. Although we might, I don't know. So one of the things in the conclusion of the book, just so everybody is on the same page here when we're having this conversation, one of the things I suggest is that given the way the racial wealth gap works, which is that most of the wealth that a majority of us have is in our homes and that that wealth is really created through things like redlining. So racial discrimination in housing and that benefit accrues to white people and to white families and they pass it on to their children and so on and so on and so on. Right. So I think that one of the things like thinking about structural changes, one of the things that we could talk about is reparations, which is a big solution that comes that would have to come from the government. Right. So lots of people who were oppressed through chattel slavery would get payouts and that would help level the, the playing field a little bit. But it doesn't solve the whole picture. Right. So one of the other structural changes that we could talk about is things like things like an inheritance tax, which we've had in this country for many, many decades, but then got washed away by the GOP and Grover Norquist and his cronies. So I think working for those kinds of structural changes are important. And then I think there are also like small ways that we could think about reconfiguring, you know, families, kinship, what we think about when we talk about kinship. I identify as queer and queer people have for many years been really good at making family out of whoever's around, you know, and I think that that kind of more expansive view of who our kin are can change the economic landscape in profound ways. But as I talk about in some length in the book, there are ways in which white women in particular go about creating families that reinforce those kinds of other hierarchies, you know, of race and of gender, and we've got to disrupt those. So, I mean, I think that the the kind of work that you're doing is really important because there are all these ways that financialization, you know, just runs over poor people and people of not wealthy means. So I think it's really important to do that. But I think it's also important to connect that micro level of advising to these sort of bigger levels of structural change that need to happen. I mean, I, I just think that's where we are. In Southern California in particular, we have Saddleback Church, and they were in the news as one of the churches recently that were expelled by the Southern Baptist Conference along with other churches because they allowed women in leadership roles. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of these churches are conservative, white. And I, I don't know if you you saw that news. I, you know, Dana briefly brought up faith based communities. And it seems like that's an interesting aspect that within that environment that there's maybe different 
levels in conservative faith-based communities that I wasn't aware of where they're expanding, allowing women in leadership roles and maybe connected to that, maybe Dana and Reverend Chelsea can talk about their work and relationship to faith-based communities dealing with LGBTQ members, the uh, people in the community that they interact with. So I don't know, that's kind of disparate questions, but maybe somewhat related. So thank you. I mean, I think one interesting thing that comes out of it, and I don't know if you've done any research, but I mean, white Christian nationalism is just rampant. And it's, uh, um, as, as a Christian, it's a very um, disturbing space. It's certainly a a lot of nice white ladies, <laughs> which we are too. So that's kind of like, how do we fit all that in? And and that is, was one of my questions. Like when I, I think it's in the middle of the book that you kind of disclose that you go to a church and um, I looked up the church. It looks so fun, but I, I think I had the expectation like a church would be on the forefront of this kind of justice issue. And it seems like we're being dragged behind even so- the slowest of society. And what do you think that like cognitive dissonance is of like claiming everybody's beloved and like not dealing with this huge elephant in the room of like racial inequality and like why, how can the church be better? I guess also. Yeah. Great questions. I, I do go, I do go to a church on the West side of Manhattan called Metropolitan Community Church of New York. And we, as I'm sure you are gearing up for the Easter season, part of what I'm working on a new project now about combating the far right. And as part of that, I I put a couple of links in the chat. One is by um, a book by Hayward Carter, who's a wonderful queer theologian who I've been reading for a long time. And she has a new book on Christian nationalism, which since you folks are in the church, you may find useful because it's very, it's very much written to an audience of the church. So, you know, it's framed in terms of the seven deadly sins of white Christian white nationalism. And then the other thing I put in the chat is this link to Southern Christian Coalition. So for this new book I'm working on, I'm interviewing a lot of people who are combating the far right. And I just got back from Tennessee a couple of weeks ago where I was talking to these folks from the Southern Christian Coalition, and they're doing great work in getting pastors. And this is in uh, around Nashville, Tennessee, but in Tennessee across the state, getting pastors to come out as against Christian nationalism. And they've been really successful. And I, and when I even asked them, are there, is there pushback around like drag queens or, you know, queer issues? And they were like, not at all. So I was really, I was actually really encouraged by that. And I I think that, that we who are in the church really have to step up our game and sort of recognize that the language that we hold sacred is being weaponized, you know, and it's being weaponized by white supremacists and it's often weaponized in leadership by white women. And I mean, I think that's part of the work of this book as well is to sort of say, hey, it's not, we are past the point when we can say in a useful political way, all women need to come together to do. It's just, that's just not a meaningful category anymore. And I don't think that we should be using it. So we have to think about who who the people are. You know, when we say find your people, who are your people? Like, who is that? You know what I mean? And so, and I think that one of the things I wanted to say also about the the question earlier about do I do I really mean all white women? And aren't there aren't there some white women who are terrible who are on the far right and we shouldn't be talking to them? I mean, I I think that that's true-ish, that there are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, as much as I would like to sit down and have a conversation with her, I don't think that she's amenable to that, (laughs) to put it mildly. But I also think that we have to recognize the work that that does for us who consider ourselves to be the good white women when we're pointing to the other white women who are the bad ones. Do you know what I mean? So, so it's it's something that I wrote about in in that early book in White Lies. I talked about how when the white supremacists would go on the television talk shows, there were four that were popular in the afternoons. Then Oprah, Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, and uh, Geraldo. And as a routine matter of programming, 
the producers on those shows would invite white supremacists to come on. And the, the format was always, let's have a debate. And so sort of most infamously, Geraldo Rivera invited a white supremacist on. And then he had these esteemed leaders of the civil rights movement on the same dais, right, on the same level. And they're going to have a debate about civil rights. And, and I knew from looking at the publications that these white supremacists were thrilled about that. And at the same time, for a white liberal audience, they could point their finger at the people on the dais and say, oh, we're not like that, right? And in fact, the Newsweek cover photo of the week with Geraldo, you know, caught a chair in his nose and he was all bloody and the, the headline said, trash TV. And that's kind of what we do when we talk about the far right. We call them trash, right? And there's a whole political backstory to calling some white people trash and others not trash. Yeah, that's, I, I'm just, I'm thinking through that, that that's, I, you're, yeah, I, I, I get that. I'm sure I've done, I know I've done that, you know, because well, I'm I mean, trying it's, to. It's easy and it's convenient, right? Because we think of white supremacists as like, we think of them as not, you know, they don't, their teeth are not taken care of. They all live in trailer parks. They've never been to school, you know, and that influences the journalism that we see, you know, so somebody like Richard Spencer comes along, he's got all his teeth. They, you know, he's been to an orthodontist. He's got on a good suit. He's had a decent haircut. And, and the journalists are like, wow, look at this, a whole new breed of white supremacists. It's like, no, <laughs> this has been around since forever don't don't be taken in by this but but again back to my point there's a way in which that's comforting for those of us in the in the center of whiteness to go oh it's oh it's them over there oh that's terrible what they do right yeah i'm not them that's the oh my heavens look at how good i am compared to them another thought i, I want to talk about or I, you know it came up for me is like we had a lot of conversation around the self-care chapter right oh this is a good one right <laughs> I think one of the things I am always trying to understand, um, you know, especially coming out of ministry and, and, you know, always being asked, like, what are you doing, Dana, for self-care? Like, you know, do you hold both? Do you find productive ways to, to honor and understand that in order for you to do the work, you have to self-care, but at the same time, you also have to understand that there's got to be communal, global, wide self-care, and they have to exist together because we have to work for for, you know, fighting systemic racism and ending food apartheid, but yet practicing self-care to do that work. How do, how do those two things coexist? Yeah, coexist? yeah I, it's, it's super complicated. And there's another book that I'm working on down the line. <laughs> I'm not ready to write it. I don't think anybody's ready to read it yet, but it's going to be called Healing from Whiteness. And so I think that we have part of the way to hold both those things is that we've got to begin to understand the damage that whiteness does to us. And I, I think that we're way before the beginning of even understanding any of that. So I'll just tell you, I mean, my own practice, I'll tell you what my my routine looks like, which is, I mean, I'm mostly a writer, which means I sit far too much. And so I've got to build in ways to stretch. And that's like a, a self-care thing for me. And I grew up in South Texas and I hate the heat. So my favorite thing as a kid was to go roller skating inside. And it's still my favorite thing. If there's loud music, a disco ball and other people, then that is self-care to me. So finding those kinds of things. But the thing that I try and emphasize with people is that those two things, stretching and roller skating, both move the body and there is something in movement that heals. But one of those is collective. And there is much more joy for me in roller skating with a bunch of other people than there is just in doing stretches, you know, by myself to get my hips to release, you know? So, I mean, I think that that's part of what we have to do. And we also have to really pay attention to the way that we're being ripped off by people who are charlatans who are selling us things under the banner of self-care. I mean, that was really the purpose for me in a lot of ways of that chapter was like, Y'all are buying things and that's something, but that's not self-care. And and the extent to which, I mean, I don't know what it's like in where you are, but here there's a lot of like self-care that gets sold with the banner of Audre Lorde over it. I mean, I sit in an institution where Audre Lorde actually taught. And so I'm always like, I don't think that's what she meant. <laughs> we have yeah. a lot of self-care spaces here in Southern California. <laughs> I, I have heard tell. Yeah. 
But I mean, I but I also want to say, I mean, I, I went pretty hard for Gwyneth Paltrow in that chapter. And I also want to say I, I feel terrible for her now, honestly. I mean, because she's got long COVID. And that's a that's an actual medical condition. Just I, I mean, I haven't followed this closely, but just to hear some of the stuff that she's trying to help address this, I just my heart breaks for her, like honestly, because all that stuff that she's selling is not going to fix what's wrong with her. I mean, that's the real dilemma with all the wellness and healthcare stuff is that it's it doesn't it doesn't get to what's really making us sick. Hi, my question is um, along that same vein. How do you handle? I feel like every time that I start to feel like, oh, I'm I'm understanding this, I'm getting a better grip. I just realize that there's so much more. <laughs> there's like a whole nother layer. Like every single time that I start to like get more of an understanding and get more of a clearer view of the world around me. Like, how do you not feel overwhelmed? Do you even feel overwhelmed? Like, how do you handle that? I feel overwhelmed on the regular, <laughs> you know. And I, I, to me, it's just part of a process of. For example, on this book I mentioned, I'm just working on now about combating the far right. I'm super overwhelmed. Like, I mean, and I've been doing this for 30 years and I feel like I don't know what any of this literature says. I, I feel like I'm at zero on understanding it. But I also know that that's not true. <laughs> I actually do know some stuff. And that it's, I think of it now more as a circular pattern. You know, it's not like a, we were taught... We're misled so many times when we're taught that things are linear and that hardly anything in life is linear. I mean, some things are, but but I think of it as much more circular. Like I, I learn things over and over again, but I learn them at a deeper level. And, and the other thing that I want to say just in to connect this to the previous comment is I really 100% believe that knowledge is not created alone. You have to be in conversation with other people to really learn anything and that's true for me as well. So for example, oh, what's an easy example of this? Uh, there are just things that I don't, I don't understand until I've talked to other people about them, you know, and, and part of that is in my writing process. Like when I'm really working on something, I need to write all day. And then at the end of that day, find somebody, a student, a partner, a friend, a colleague, listen to this. Does this make sense? So to me, that's just kind of how knowledge works. <laughs> it's like, it's constant and overwhelm is part of what happens when you're learning something new and just keep going. <laughs> it's also the case that I also think that there's something just to push back a little bit on your question. I think there's something in that question that, that says something about who we are as white people, because we want to, we want to be perfect. We want to be best. We want to know everything. And the fact is, you're never going to know everything. <laughs> and I, I think that's also part of what keeps some people out of embarking on the journey. It's like, oh, I can never be perfect at that. So I'm not even going to try. And I'm just like, oh, just come be human instead. <laughs> just come relax, read, read something, watch a movie. I don't know, do something. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your eight suggestions or, or things we could do at the end of the book. Gosh, it would, I mean, some of them, they kind of go from fairly easy to, oh, crap, I don't know if I can do that. Thank you for that range. Okay, I really appreciate it. And so many books don't do that. So my hat's off to you for doing that. Please keep doing that in all your books. The other thing is I found your book just really cringeworthy. So I think it's through that discomfort that we move and we grow. And thank you for making me very uncomfortable. Well, thank you for sticking with it. I really, I really, I actually want to ask you a question. So what do you think made it possible for you to keep going where somebody else would have just put the book down? Uh, two things. Um, I did it, got the audible. Okay, so it made it easy. I could be brushing my teeth. I could be doing all sorts of things while I was reading. So I did, I, it was, you could keep going on yeah. it. This group was extremely helpful in having me focus on the book and the questions you provided. Oh, okay. They were, it's hard to find good questions. And mm -hmm. authors don't very often provide them, to be honest, or maybe they're the worst person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you did. And thank you. And they were extremely helpful. Even for the times I could not meet with this group, I had your questions. Oh, great. So that's, that, so, that's really helpful for me to hear. I've heard actually from other people about the audio narration, which I had a great time doing. And so 
I'm glad that that's useful. Um, and this is the first feedback I've gotten on the questions. So thank you so much. And I wrote those, especially for this group. They will live on and go to other groups after this. But thank you all for inviting me to write them because I wouldn't have done it without the prompt from you all. Well, the other thing the audio book did, uh-huh. it, it, I went and bought the book, okay? Because the, <laughs> there were underlying moments. Right, right. I, I'm never going to remember that. Okay, or won't be able to find it afterwards. So I have a hard copy and the audio copy. Wonderful. Thank you. I really, really grateful to you. Thank you so much. I think I I would agree. Thank you, Kathy. I think that's really helpful because I I do think the book was challenging for I I mean I for me for sure. And I want to say for for our group, we all we wrestled with it together. Mm -hmm. Um, we stayed committed to it. And the questions having having questions in a challenging space where where you have to get you know where you're willing to get uncomfortable is great mm-hmm. um, because it's like you have a little guide i will also add and this is i'm going to give a little testament to this group is this group is a group that uh, that that is okay in uncomfortable spaces. Mm-hmm. They recognize that in uncomfortable spaces we grow and we develop individually and collectively. And and so I appreciate this particular group. And I, and I've had experience where that's not always the case. People do not want to grow and develop, and so they push back on that. I, I'm I'm sort of the person from the other coast, like you. I, I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I got sort of slipped into this group by being out here via, you know, Cindy Brighter. It's honestly easier when you aren't with the people that know you really well. Like I'm a uh-huh. late leader in this great big downtown church. Right, right. I don't want to talk about this stuff with those people. Okay. <laughs> because there's some of the people that just, you know, so at any rate. Thank you all so much for your time with this book and for inviting me through. And just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, and we look forward to what's whatever's next for you, and we we hope to engage with you again. Yes, me too. Wonderful. Thank Take you. care. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter. And keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective Table.